Hi there, and welcome to Forgotten Scenes, where we're going to take a look at little microbursts of culture that burned hot and then vanished. Sometimes they left brilliant little legacies. Sometimes they left nothing. We're going to talk about both. This first season is called The Freaks in the Barn. And this episode, number one of that first season, is called Ziggy Does Sioux City. I'm Keith Pilly. Now, I am really excited for this first season. Like I said, it's called The Freaks in the Barn, where we'll be talking about an intense little psychedelic scene that flourished in Sioux City, Iowa in the early 1970s. This is one of those that burned hot and then mostly vanished, although in an indirect but very real way, the musical landscape of the 1990s would have been very different if it had never happened. But before we get into all that, I wanted to take a second to talk about this show and who I am and why I'm doing this. So, I am a writer and historian who lives in Minneapolis. You might know me from the other history show I've done, The Kraken Busters, where I talked about the U.S. Navy's battles against sea monsters after World War II and then again in 1987. And while I am really, really proud of that show, and if you haven't listened to it, go listen to it, Um, and I enjoyed working on both seasons of it, the whole time I was working on it, I was conscious that, you know, honestly, by academic training, I am mainly a cultural historian, and over there I was doing a military history show. And I thought, you know, it maybe it would be fun and more appropriate to do something that was more directly in my actual area of expertise. So, I was out walking my dog, Phil Collins, thinking this over, when suddenly I remembered something. Specifically, I remembered a time back in the early days of the internet when some friends and I were exchanging mixed CDs. And my friend Chad had started his CD off with this just brilliant but kind of janky track that sounded, I mean, honestly, it's kind of hard to describe. Kind of like the Stooges, kind of like the Flaming Lips, kind of like the MC5. Super high energy, super aggressive, and just hilarious. Really catchy chorus sing-screaming about how capitalism makes beasts of us all. And uh, the sound quality was total ass. The, uh, the MP3 that Chad had had obviously been the result of a bad transfer from some old beat-up vinyl. I asked Chad what the hell this was, and he said it was some group called The Thwarted, some kind of Iowa music legends he'd heard about in college in Ames. So back then, I did some digging and found out that The Thwarted were a psychedelic proto-punk band from Sioux City, that came and went in the space of about 18 months, and that they were part of something bigger, and a bunch of other groups were in the same weird mix. And that's where I left it in 2003. But this winter, while I was walking Phil Collins, the whole thing came blasting back to me. There, that's it. There's the new show. Look for these little eruptions of culture that happen from time to time in out-of-the-way places, and try to shine a light on them. Music, sure, but also visual art, writing, you name it. So that's what I'm going to do. And I figured it only made sense to start all that with the memory that inspired this, the thwarted, and whatever else had gone on in Sioux City back then. So I started researching, and for the next couple of weeks, my eyes just kept bugging out. 
There was just so much cool, crazy shit here. Great bands. A car dealership heir who wanted to preside over a psychedelic art and music scene. A woman who was still pretty sure that she'd summon the devil to a concert. And, again, one of the cornerstones of music as we knew it in the 90s. So, that's the goal of the show. And, that's the goal of this first season, The Freaks in the Barn. I absolutely cannot wait to introduce all of you to the Hoska brothers and Sammy Otto and Big Tex Lowry and, of course, The Thwarted. I should add that in the course of doing my research, I was actually able to sit down and talk with a few of the central figures. And um, I think I'm going to be able to share some of those interviews directly, which is pretty cool. Now, unfortunately, it wasn't possible for me to talk to the man who accidentally kicked this all off. But I believe that he, at least, is someone you're probably already familiar with. So let's get into it. In 1972, David Bowie existed in a liminal space in music. He'd been around for a while, and had achieved some level of fame in the UK, but he was essentially unknown in the United States, especially in the mainstream. In England, he had made waves with the unveiling of his outre performance persona, Ziggy Stardust, a glamorous, remote, supposedly alien rock and roller who was backed by the nearly as glamorous Spiders from Mars. Nearly as glamorous on stage, at least. The spiders were pretty workaday offstage. We'll get there. Uh, the Ziggy Stardust Act was an early example of a multimedia rock show, to be honest. You had great, just towering music, powered with an elaborate, highly theatrical stage show, uh, which was centered on ornate costumes and Bowie's almost inhuman performance charisma. It was just like nothing else out there at the time. And Ziggy Stardust had gone over huge in England. And in September of 1972, Bowie hoped to finally break big in the U.S. on the strength of the character and, of course, the fantastic music associated with it. And he did! The U.S. leg of the Ziggy Stardust tour didn't exactly make David Bowie a household name in the United States, but he did get a lot of coverage, and it established him as someone who was at least very important in the minds of people who cared about rock music. The tour opened on September 22nd, 1972, with a show in Cleveland. The audience was blown away by the music and the theatricality, and the press coverage was rapturous. About a week later, a blowout show at Carnegie Hall in New York made a big splash in the taste-making New York media, and by the end of the tour, Bowie was a bona fide star in the United States. But there was a weird little hiccup on the way. The Ziggy Stardust Tour stopped in Kansas City on October 15th after a couple of back-to-back shows in St. Louis. After that, there was a small hiatus in the show schedule. Bowie liked to build these breaks in to keep from overstraining his voice, um, hiatus before a show in Santa Monica. In Kansas City, with a few days to kill, the mercurial Bowie decided that if he was in the American Midwest, What he'd really like to see would be Mount Rushmore and the Black Hills of South Dakota. He said that he was impressed with the level of ego and showmanship that it took to carve giant likenesses into mountains. And the fact that the uh, mountain in question, along with the entire Black Hills region, was sacred to the Lakota Sioux living in the area, well, that was pretty fascinating too to the mystically-minded Bowie. So, the trucks carrying the spider's stage setup were sent on to Santa Monica, 
but the tour bus that Bowie, the rest of the Spiders, and their entourage rode in headed up north, up Interstate 29 towards South Dakota for a sightseeing trip. It was a tour bus they were taking, by the way, because Bowie was terrified of flying, refused to get on a plane, and uh, this is a fact that will become important in just a second. I will spoil this little storyline right now by saying that Bowie and the Spiders never made it to the Black Hills. In fact, they never made it to South Dakota. The band stopped for food and gas in Sioux City, Iowa, very early in the morning of October 16th, and after the bus was gassed up, it just wouldn't start. In fact, a quick look revealed that the motor was essentially destroyed, and the transmission was also about to go. For all the visible glamour of Ziggy Stardust, the tour was actually kind of a uh, shoestring affair, and Bowie's manager, Tony DeFries, had chartered the cheapest bus he could find. Oops. The details of the breakdown of the bus don't matter, of course. What matters is that the thing was absolutely inoperable, and that really they'd been lucky to make it as far as they had, and that a whole bunch of parts were going to be needed to get this thing rolling again and that those parts, they were agonized to discover, would all need to be shipped separately in from Chicago, Omaha, and Fargo. And yeah, another thing that matters here, like I said, the extremely flight-averse Bowie absolutely refused to charter a plane to get out of Sioux City. A plane? This is the same place the Big Bopper died. Sawed off, he supposedly told DeFries. And finally that for whatever reason, no other buses were available anywhere nearby. So, Bowie and the Spiders were stuck in Sioux City for at least a few days, and all they could do was hope that either their bus could be fixed or a replacement could be found in time to get them to Santa Monica for the next show. Tony DeFries, managing the band, checked them into the Aventino Motor Inn, then the nicest hotel in Sioux City, and Bowie spent the first day sulking and freaking out, mostly alone in his room, as he moved through a small mountain of cocaine. But then something magical happened. The rest of the band, who were a bit less mercurial than their frontman, had figured out that, you know, the Aventino was a nice enough place, but it wasn't so special that they needed to just hunker down there. So they set out in search of a place to get a drink. And they quickly settled into the Jackie Club, a small Sioux City dive bar for some burgers and beers, and they started talking to the locals and making friends. I should mention here that the Spiders, um, I mean, all of them, Mick Ronson, the other, you know, just everybody, they were all working class guys from the north of England, all much more down to earth than Bowie. And Ronson and the boys found it pretty easy to relate to the Sioux citizens, especially since the Jockey Club also happened to be a hub for local musicians. A great night was had by all that first night, and the next afternoon, Ronson convinced Bowie, who'd regained a little bit of equilibrium by now, to come down and join them. And for the next three days, Bowie, Ronson, and the other spiders from Mars held court at the Jockey Club talking, drinking, jamming, and exchanging ideas with a small but vital core of Sioux City's biggest weirdos. The Spiders bus got fixed just in time, and after setting the driver up with a frankly dangerous amount of trucker speed, the band got to Santa Monica in time to continue David Bowie's rise to prominence in the United States and beyond. But that's not really why we're here. It's a great story, but it's a story that we all already know. Instead, we're here to talk about what happened in Sioux City afterwards. 
because it turns out that Bowie and Rano and the boys had planted a lot of seeds at the Jockey Club. Seeds that sprouted quickly into something magical and wonderful, if not very long-lasting. Over the next five weeks, we are going to start looking at those seeds and what they flowered into. There were a lot of really cool weirdos hanging out those nights at the Jockey Club. And of course, one of them even made her way back to the Aventino Motor Inn. That's a story for next week. Um, thank you for listening so far. If this sounded interesting to you at all, and uh, you think what's coming next sounds interesting, uh, first, of course, please come back in a week when I will have some interesting stuff for you. Um, also, you know, please consider telling a person or two about this. Um, you know, partly as a creator, of course, we all want our work to get out in front of people as much as possible. And, you know, I also, I think this is an important story that needs to go out. And, uh, you know, I just, I would appreciate your help in getting it out in front of as many as people, in front of as many people as possible. Um, yeah, so thank you very much. Uh, thanks and be well. It was just the 4th of May. Every-